Amen. Well, I kind of hate to do this two weeks in a row, uh, but I have a story that probably didn't happen, that you've probably heard, but that I think teaches a lesson. And man, if we get to three weeks next week, you're welcome to tell me, knock it off. But here we go. There's this story, it goes around social media that there was this ship that was sailing the sea on a foggy day and they got a message over their radio asking them to divert their course. Now the ship was a prominent member of its nation's navy and they announced, we're not changing our course. You're going to have to change your course. The message that was returned simply said negative. So the ship announced over the radio, we're a big, powerful ship, strongest in the Navy, and we don't want to engage, but we will if you don't change your course. It is up to you, your move. Well, the voice said over the radio, we're a lighthouse, your move. I think faith can be like this sometimes. We can think that we're on course, that we're going the right way, only to discover that we need some correction. And often it is the big, bad battleship equipped with all the resources that, you know, maybe needs to take some advice from a more solid rock. Today we're gonna hear a story that I think speaks to this course correction. We're going to hear the story of a rock, one which, while it is sometimes on the right course, tends to wander. And it is an instructive story for us, because sometimes we are on the right path, and sometimes we're not. So let's hear our story today from the Gospel of Mark. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for this life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. And he said to them, truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. 
Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling bright, such as no one on earth could brighten them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who was talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us set up tents, three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say because they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. And may God bless this reading. Well, I've said this a few times before, and I'm going to sound like a broken record today and say it again, but there is often symbolic words used in the Gospels. There's often a deeper symbolic meaning, and today is no exception. And the symbolic meaning today in our passage comes largely from a name, Peter. We all know the story. Jesus calls this guy Simon, and he follows. And then if you go to the Gospel of Matthew, which we're not in yet, uh, Jesus decides to give this guy Simon a new name. Jesus says, I'm going to call you Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. It's a little bit of a double meaning here because Petra in Greek means rock. So Jesus is basically saying, I'm going to call you rock, and on this rock I am going to build my church. So as we get back to the Gospel of Mark, it's important to remember what Peter, the person, represents. He is the church. He is us. The Gospel of Mark doesn't have this story of Jesus declaring that Peter is the rock upon whom the church will be built, but today we hear Peter being the first person to figure out who Jesus is. Well, other than the demons. Peter is the first non-demon to figure it out. When Jesus asks, who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah, and he gets it right. And we could still today say that the church is made up of the body of those who declare Jesus as Messiah. So far, so good. But what comes next, I think, is so incredibly instructive for the church. Because what comes is what often happens in any human institution, not least of all the church. You see, the one right answer is followed by a whole bunch of wrong answers. First, Jesus goes into what will happen to the Messiah, the suffering and the persecution. And Peter, the church, immediately says, no, we won't let that happen. And Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. So the guy who just got it right, who knows who Jesus is, the guy who represents the church, who is a stand-in in the story for all of us, he's already not grasped what it means that Jesus is Lord. And Jesus reiterates, you must, if you are to follow me, you must also take up your cross. So the church and those in the church 
are so often simultaneously the folks who recognize who Jesus is, Lord and Savior, but who then get confused about what it means. And I, this isn't really something that's gone away. You'll still hear people say things like, the, hosp the church isn't a club for saints, but a hospital for sinners. Or one of my favorites, yes, the church is full of hypocrites. Wanna join? We could use another. As we journey in, on in our passage for today, we see what I think is one of the most common ways the church misunderstands Jesus' call to us. You see, this group of disciples, including Peter and James and John, head up the mountain following their master. And while there, he is transformed before their eyes. And he is joined by Elijah and Moses. Although I've always wondered how they knew it was Elijah and Moses. They didn't have photos of them, but... But this, this experience where they watch Jesus be transformed, I, you know, it's not just a mountaintop experience. This is probably where the phrase mountaintop experience comes from. In that moment, their greatest spiritual desires are fulfilled. They see clearly, even as what they are witnessing is the transformation of Jesus's body, suddenly they know he belongs to this lineage to the spiritual family of Moses and Elijah, to the people of Israel, and they hear the voice of God call down and declare Jesus the Son of God, the Beloved. In the midst of this great, powerful, spiritual moment, the kind that simply cannot last forever but must be experienced and released, what does Peter do? Remember, Peter is representative of the church. What does the church do? He proposes a building project. He proposes setting up tents to stay in. After all, they're gonna wanna stay here. He's ready to settle in and make this location the new home base of the movement. But as soon as he gets those words out of his mouth, as soon as he starts the long range planning, as soon as he begins to cast the vision for the ministry in that very particular place, the moment is over. And this is the tension that the church continues to feel. We are often caught between the desire to seek out the word of God spoken aloud in our lives while also wanting to preserve what we've experienced, to keep alive the memory of one God spoke. It's basically the struggle between institutionalism and spirituality. Everything we do here is meant to be a response to an experience of God. After all, we are the folks who declare Jesus as Messiah. And to do that, institutions set up systems to pray together, to embody the love of Christ together. And we wait together for God to speak and send us out on a new mission for this time and place. But institutions always run the same risk. Over time, the waiting on God's word to be spoken gets replaced with the more mundane things of our world, with the building projects 
the board meetings, the Sunday school classes, the worship styles, all of the stuff that goes into institutional practice. And it's all good. It all has its place. Except that over time, we misplace it. We forget that the point is not the institution. The point is the word of God spoken to the world. We're like Peter up on the mountain, witness to something amazing, and all we can do is think about how we need to get some chairs set up. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, about this tendency to forget what it's all about. The church, and I mean in the global sense, is always tempted to do more for the organization. And as a pastor, I feel that. I think about it, can I get better at preaching or teaching? What about leadership development? What about mission and vision crafting? Can we run better social media campaigns that capture more attention? Can we try new worship in a way that attracts some more people or that inspires the imagination of those who have been here faithfully worshiping for years and years? But notice in all of these things, what I'm talking about, who I am talking about, what can I do? What can we do? And then notice who I'm not talking about. What can God do? What will God do? And so this story, the transfiguration catches me off guard because I see myself in it. If I look at it long enough, it starts to really examine me. Based on what I spend my days doing, on what I spend my time even just thinking about in life, you'd assume that I went into ministry and became a pastor because I was concerned with the institutional future of the church. I sometimes wonder about all the time I spend thinking about programming and preaching and vision casting, which is all good, all necessary. But, and I think this would go for just about any pastor in the world, none of that's why I got into ministry. I became a pastor because I heard God speak. I've told the story before. I was in Tizay, France, a beautiful worshiping community, and I was sitting next to a lakeside on the property. Uh, we were told by one of the brothers to be in silence for the afternoon, which most of our group was like, all afternoon? But me being the introvert I am was like, yeah, all afternoon. And I was sitting there wondering what was next for me. It was a junior in college, the end of my junior year. And I experienced the word of God call me to follow down a path. And I can still remember this. I remember walking and looking forward and seeing the path and it was blurry. I still hold on to the blurriness of it. And so a year later, I enrolled in seminary, moved across the country, wrestled with what this meant in my life, with what I was supposed to do. And now I live in Lafayette, Indiana, and I get to serve alongside all of you and you get to hear stories about my seeking. But this is the thing with, when I think about this call story, notice what didn't happen. There's nothing in this story about building committees or worship styles or Sunday school class. You know, all of that is important, but it's not primary. God called, I listened. I learned all the other stuff along the way 
and I'm just going to make a typo here, I am learning all this stuff along the way. But every once in a while, I wonder if in my own life I have made faith too much about the institutional concerns and not enough about communing with God. There's this phrase that goes around, does the tail wag the dog? Have the means to listening to God become the ends in and of themselves? And so I see myself in Peter. It's so easy to think that the end of all this is simply all of this and not the kingdom of God. But the message of scripture is that it will need to be renewed. We will need to recover focus on what is most important because the church will set out to follow Jesus on his walk into the world toward the cross only to find itself setting up tents on the side of a mountain far away from where this is all heading. One of my favorite writers over the past few years is the Lutheran theologian, Andrew Root. I talk about him so much that I can see some reactions from friends out in the sanctuary. Well, I heard him talking on a podcast recently and he said something that has, as they say, lived rent-free in my mind sense. So he is really concerned with the crisis of the church, as he calls it. But he says that the crisis is not what we think it is. It's not whether or not we will have the resources to maintain the church in the future. The crisis, he says, is whether or not we will learn to listen to God's call. Do we believe God can speak? Is this all about us and what we can do? Is it about setting up more tents or is it about seeking a word from the living God? When this podcast, he said something that has really stuck with me. He said he believes that many pastors are losing some nights of sleep, concerned about numbers, money and members. And he told the host that he believes that pastors probably should lose some nights of sleep, but he insisted not for those reasons. In a secular world, he says, in which we so seldom depend on or expect a word from God to be spoken into our lives, how do we, how do I as a pastor inspire those listening to hear the word of God spoken afresh? That, for root, is what should keep us up. That's the crisis of the church. Do we believe that God can speak? And are we listening? I mean, I believe because I've heard it before because I responded and my life has not been the same. You know, I often remind myself that in the vision I had, the path that unfolded before me in today was not clear. It was blurry with an uncertain destination. And I, this is not a better way to describe working in the church today. <laughs> blurry with an uncertain destination. But my question, and I hope it's ours, is how do we make sure that we are living our lives together as the church focused on the right thing? Not on whether or not we need to set up more tents on the side of a mountain, but whether or not we are leading people and being led to an authentic relationship with God. You know, we are the rock. 
And on this rock, Christ has established his church, his presence on earth. We all know if we look back in our lives of an experience of a living God, and if we honestly reflect on our lives together, we also know what it's like to get distracted by all of the institutional tasks that must be accomplished. But the season of Lent begins this week. And it might be the perfect season to listen. It's popular to give something up during Lent. Uh, but sometimes we think of it like a diet. You know, you may need to give up sweets, but that's not really what Lent is for. Lent is for making room for God. So what if this Lent, we just listened? What if we waited for what God would do? And what if we allowed our course to change, even if for a moment the word of God spoke and we listened? So as we enter this season, I invite you, where is God moving? How do we on the mountaintop not get lost in what needs to be done tomorrow and next year and the next decade, but in the moment when God speaks? Let us pray. O holy and gracious God, as we gather here today, we pray that in all things we might be open to your presence, receptive to what it is that you are doing. May your spirit fill us and embolden us and enliven us to be proclaimers of your good news. We pray all of this in your holy name. Amen.